0: Amen. Thanks, Austin. Well, good morning. As Austin said, my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Uh, Good to see you. Thank you for tuning in online. Uh, And those of you who are here, thank you for being here. We're continuing in this series on Isaiah. We've actually got uh, just a couple of more weeks, and then we're going to be in uh, Advent. Uh, Hard to believe. We're almost through another year. Um, But... As we come toward the end, uh, we're going to be in Isaiah 63 and then Isaiah 64. So I'm going to read these to you. You can find them uh, on the insert that was in your worship folder. Uh, They'll be on the screen behind me. Uh, You can follow along in your uh, personal Bible or uh, pew Bible. We've got lots of different choices. So from Isaiah 63, uh, beginning in verse 15... And 16, and then I'll just immediately jump to Isaiah 64. So hear God's word. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation, where your zeal and your might, the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me, for you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Lost my place, sorry. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you are angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? For we have all become like one who is unclean and All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. Uh, This is God's word. Uh, On the back of uh, the insert, or, uh, well, whichever way you're holding it, uh, is the outline. So you can see where we're going Uh, As we're coming to the end of this particular focus in Isaiah, we're going to be in Isaiah in Advent. It'll just be a little bit different of a focus. But this particular focus of the last few months has been, as the uh, slide there says, comforting the disturbed and disturbing the comforted or comfortable. Uh, And as you see there from the title, what we see here uh, and what we've seen over and over is that disturbance is promised. Uh, but comfort will be sought and ultimately uh, received. I've been struck, I don't know about you, but I've been struck in a lot of different ways by the meditations over these weeks about God's character. I've been caught in wrong thoughts about him, that I've been thinking of him a certain way, and in reality he is another way altogether, or I have been thinking about myself wrongly. I've been caught thinking of myself a certain way when in reality the Bible teaches me that I am A different way. Last week we were exhorted to repent of our wrong thoughts about God, and that faith and repentance are a lifelong journey as our thoughts and ways come into line with the truth of the Bible's teaching on who God actually is. Over and over again it seems Isaiah takes great pains to correct Israel's wrong views of God and themselves, and today's text uh, is no different. So we're gonna meditate kind of on the same uh, prism. So to speak, but just like a prism, if you hold it up from a different angle, it reveals different colors or features that you may not have seen before or better yet have forgotten. And so that's a way to look at what we're doing here. You can follow along uh, as we go through and you can see where we're going. Uh, how do you fill in the blank that we find in those first three verses of the chapter uh, 64? Oh, that you would. How does how does Israel how had Israel come to fill in that blank? Secondly, uh, we have a huge problem. We talk about this problem all the time uh, here uh, because it's well all over the Bible. It's kind of hard to miss. We have a big problem. Uh, we are sin sick, and what we find here is God is furious at sin. Let's not mince words. He's furious at sin, but he's lovingly furious. And what that leads us to is looking at him looking at us. And how does that provide comfort? What does his looking lead to? And I want to finish by just taking a look at the fact that his loving fury is driven by furious love. And that furious love flows from deep emotion. So I might get deeply emotional standing up here. Forgive me, but after the last month of my life... (laughs) I've given up on worrying about getting emotional in front of other people. I didn't really care before that very much what other people thought of me. Those of you that have known me a long time can probably attest to that. But uh, the the emotional part, you know, you kind of want to hide a little bit and reserve yourself. But I think we just sang a few minutes ago, you you know our weaknesses. You love us anyway. Hopefully we're that kind of friends to each other as God is that kind of a friend to us. So first, okay, first, take a look at these first couple of verses Where he cries out, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. It's worth noting where we are in history as we read these words, okay? Isaiah is a prophet to the nation of Judah, and their capital city is Jerusalem. And he's warning them of their apostasy from the Lord, their refusal to obey their covenant obligations. And he's threatening them, or God through him is threatening them with judgment and ultimately exile. And what these words in verses 1 to 3 are it really is a prayer asking that God would show up and judge those who have conquered and enslaved his people. Isaiah is saying, God, would you do something? Now, we, we just finished uh, reading Jonah, the prophet Jonah, this last week in community Bible reading. It's a short little book, uh, but very, very profound in many ways. And Jonah, Jonah's problem, as you see, as you read the book, is... He wants a God of his own making. He wants a God who just will simply smite the bad people and bless the good people. Well, the good people, of course, are Jonah and his countrymen. The bad people are the Ninevites, right? And when the real God, not the counterfeit that Jonah has made up in his mind. Now remember, Jonah is an Israelite. He had been raised hearing the stories that you and I read about in these first I don't know, several hundred pages of the Bible. He knew them backwards and forwards. And yet, he still did not want Nineveh to repent. He didn't want people who weren't like him to become like him. He wanted God to judge them. And so he's continually thrown into fury and despair as God continues to show up, the real God, that is. And he finds the real God to be a mystery. He can't reconcile the mercy of God with the justice of God. So when he goes to Nineveh, when he actually goes, you know, the first time God said, go to Nineveh, he said, peace out. I'm going the other direction. After God kind of dealt with him, uh, and if you don't know the story, uh, it's a very fishy story. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Sorry, that wasn't a very good one. Um, anyway, it's a fishy story. After God deals with him, he goes back to Nineveh. He he uh, he preaches to Nineveh what God tells him to preach, which was forty days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And what is he hoping happens? That they are destroyed. But you get at the toward the end of the story, you get this ironic statement where Jonah says this is what I knew would happen because they turn from their ways. And he says, this is what I knew would happen because I know who you are. I know you're a God who is slow to anger. I know you're a God who's forgiving and merciful. But Jonah's problem, see, was Israel's problem. It was their tribalism. They had come to view their status as God's chosen people as assuming that God would play favorites, right? The good people who do what God wants and says the bad people who don't. We're God's MVPs, they thought, right? We are the good guys. And consequently, they became very self-righteous about all the other nations. When you read these words, they are a cry for action. They are a prayer for God to release his judgment and wrath on his enemies. Look at what it says again. That the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood or fire causes water to boil so that you would make your name known to your adversaries. They don't mean in a nice way. That the nations might tremble at your presence. They're asking for him to come down in judgment. And the problem was that Israel expected this for all the other nations, but not for themselves. And part of Isaiah's and all the prophets' roles was to hold up a mirror as the people were holding up binoculars. Looking out at all the other, oh, these terrible, I feel so sorry for all these people. If they were only like us, and the prophets are holding a mirror up the entire time going, hello, those of you who remember Back to the Future, McFly. Incidentally, if they were to make a uh, Back to the Future today, I would uh, nominate Pat to be Doc. (laughs) Patrick, you know, the guy that was just standing up here with the hair, It's great here, actually. The question for us, though, is when you long for God to come down in judgment, who do you most want to get what's coming to them? And you all know who I'm talking about. You have those people in your mind. A better question is maybe who in your life has sinned against you so many times that you hope, you find yourself hoping for just a little, it doesn't have to be a lot, just a little, retribution just a little bit that they would get what's coming to them. When you see those who have committed injustice or broken the law escape, or maybe someone who's cheated the system in some way, how angry does it make you? See, when these words become... Used as a prayer for vengeful repayment on those who are not in your tribe, whether that tribe is your family tribe, your church tribe, political party tribe, nation state tribe, whatever it is, you're not thinking rightly about you or God himself. The reality is, and I would, I, I would say this to, to all of us just as a reminder historically, God is coming in judgment. And whether Isaiah fully realized it or not as he's crying out, and whether the people really fully realized it or not as they were crying out, he is ultimately coming in judgment because Israel in the north and Judah in the south would both be exiled, enslaved by foreign powers. And let me say if you're here and, or you're tuning in online, you're not a Christian or you're investigating Christianity, wondering, what is it? What is this Christianity? And you're new to the Bible. It's very clear. The Bible says God is coming in judgment. He will rend the heavens and come down once and for all in the future. And everything described in these verses will be the case. It will be, though, ultimate and final, a disturbance. And so if you're comfortable on that day, the Bible says it will be the ultimate disturbance for you. The exile for those who are outside of Jesus' cleansing blood will be permanent and eternal. Both Judah and Israel were exiled, but they were eventually brought back. But this exile that ultimately will take place, the final judgment, the Bible calls it, will be eternal. Jesus himself says he doesn't know when that will be, but for now... To see ourselves rightly and God himself rightly to continue kind of on this journey, we have to read on. So Isaiah corrects Israel's view of themselves as well as drawing attention to what is driving God's wrath against sin and violence. And that leads us to this second piece here, melting in sin's hands. Isaiah puts his finger on the core of the problem. See, he says, oh God, that you would rend the heavens and come down. When you did awesome deeds we didn't look for, you came down and and the mountains quaked at your presence because no one's ever seen or heard of a God besides you. You're incredible. You act for those who wait for you. You meet the one who's joyfully working righteousness. And then he goes kind of in a different direction. He says, behold, you were angry and we sinned. And in our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? Can you imagine living in the unknown of realizing you've been in your sins a really long time and not knowing whether you'd be saved or not? Of course, on this side of the work of Jesus, we know the answer to that question. But we have to sit in this uh, for a a few minutes before we can move to the resolution. And you know, that's part of our goal each week is that you would feel this tension and Jesus as the hero of the story would come writing into uh, your heart week in and week out that you would leave more in need of him than when you came in. And so hopefully through the service and even through the sermon, you feel that story. So the tension is, he, he makes four comparisons, okay? The first is, he says, we live like one who is unclean. We're sin sick. We're riddled with the disease of sin. Uh, Ray Ortland makes this analogy. He says, it's, it's like we ought to begin every interaction with another person like this hi, my name is Jonathan, I'm a leper. Don't get too closer, you'll be a leper like me too. As if to say, we've all got this disease and sometimes we try to cover it up, we put more clothing on so you can't see the leprous spots, but the problem is our uncleanness is highly contagious, far more contagious than the Delta variant. One mean comment, one unkind put down, and the other person lashes back We've all experienced this. We've all done this, right? Our sin spreads like gangrene. We are like one who is unclean. But not only are we like one who's unclean, he says, uh, verse 6, these are all 6, all verse 6. So if you're following along, just park your eyes right there. He says, our best behavior is like a polluted garment. Our righteousness is polluted with self-interest. Remember last week, Drew talked about a lifestyle of repentance and faith for the Christian, but it's not just our sins we repent of, right? We repent of our righteousness as well. Isaiah compares them to a menstrual cloth. That's graphic and gross, but that's the point. He's not saying There's no redeeming value in doing something good or kind. He's saying when those things become the basis for you trying to win God's approval or favor, they're as filthy as that, a polluted garment. So not all all, are we like one who is unclean and our righteousness like a polluted garment. He says we all exist, we we all live fading like a leaf. Meaning we're, we're brittle, we're easily depleted. That's part of the reason why it stinks to get old. Because you don't have the energy that you used to have. After uh, Hurricane Irma came through a couple of years ago, uh, my dad, who is uh, pushing 80 now, um, called me uh, the, the day after. Hey, are, are you okay? Is everything okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I need some help. Uh, some uh, trees blew down, and, 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 you know, uh, stuff's everywhere in the yard, and, well, I just don't have the energy. And I got there, and my brother-in-law was there, and and we started to clean up, and, you know, truth be told, it wasn't that much stuff. But he's, you know, pushing 80. And as he sat there in the uh, the, uh, driveway with his fan, garage fan, Hooked up to his generator, he is weeping. Because he realized that he's fading like a leaf. See, we're all utterly helpless. We've been lulled to sleep, this passage says. Our senses have been dulled by the deceitfulness of sin. We read that not too long ago in Hebrews. And what what the writer's trying to say and what Isaiah's trying to say here is, there's like, sin is like a lidocaine that numbs your heart. We're so out of it that we can't be roused out of it. Have you ever been put under general anesthesia or had a nerve blocker? So I had my shoulder operated on back in, in January and they said to me, are you in agreement to be, uh, experience a nerve blocker that we can put in before we put you under? I said, I've never experienced a nerve blocker. What does it do? Well, it blocks the nerves. Okay. But I don't want you to wake up and be weirded out, the anesthesiologist said, because we're going to block your nerve like from here over to here, and it's going to last probably until the middle of the night, and then you'll start experiencing uh, really bad pain. So I'm just going to put you under real briefly, and we're going to put the nerve blocker in. You know, when you wake up out of general anesthesia, and you just feel so lost, I mean, you're just, Right? you coming coming out of a tunnel and the nurses are, okay, it's time to wake up. It feels like they're yelling, but they're not, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what it's like to be put under. And, and, and as I was reading this, that's, that's the sense. There's no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. We're so deadened by sin. And it, regarding this leaf analogy, life can just trample us under its foot, Right? Much like a leaf that's fallen from a tree, once pretty as it's changed colors, we all drive to see them change colors, but we don't go up there when they're all brown and fallen on the ground and run over, do we? No. Lastly, our sins are like the wind, Isaiah says. Our sins control, uh, control us. They, they take control of us. They move us away. Well, away where? Well, any direction. Any direction that our stubborn, self-concerned desires will take us. Earlier in the book, Isaiah says we have turned everyone to, do you remember, his own way. And like the prodigal in Jesus' famous parable in Luke chapter 15, we go away. Away where? Well, away from home, away from authority, away from stability. The point is our sin makes us restless. Now you may remember some weeks back when we looked at Isaiah chapter 6 which was the prophet's encounter with God in all his splendor and glory and majesty the holy, holy, holy God when rightly seen will produce a response like these verses. In our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? You can feel how deadened you are because of your sin sickness and there's actually a little tiny part of you that wonders, maybe doubts. Shall we be saved? Or, like Isaiah's response is, woe is me. I'm undone. But here's the good news. When we respond that way, God says, I'll meet you with forgiveness and mercy and tenderness and compassion. How's that possible? Well, look at verse 4. He says, from of old, no, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait For him, no one has ever seen or heard of or created a God like the God of the Bible. So, why do we continue to try? You're never going to invent one better than him. We come to him, melting away in the hand of our sins, and we wait. But we don't wait idly or passively. That's not what you see over and over in the Bible. Read the Psalms. The psalmists over and over again are calling on him to act as they wait. But they're committed to waiting because they know he works. As we wait, we call on him, and that is seeing him rightly. And that leads me to uh, the last thing. We know God is in the habit of listening and responding to his people when they cry out for him To act, you know, as I was uh, studying, kind of reflecting on this this week, uh, I couldn't help but be reminded of Exodus 2 and 3. The people of Israel were groaning under their slavery in Egypt, and their cry came up to God. Let me just tell you, Exodus 2, 23, 24, and 25, right at the end of the chapter, and then Exodus 3, the words or the description of God, and then in chapter 3, his words, are some of the most profound for me, in all the Bible. And if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, go find those passages and read them because they might be profound for you too. You get this insight. And that's just what I want to spend the last few minutes here. This insight into the character, the personality of God. What gets revealed about him? Exodus says, they're groaning and their cry came up to God. He heard their groaning and he remembered. Not as though he forgot them, but to remind them that he wouldn't forsake them. Exodus 2.25 says, God saw and God knew. In Exodus, he himself says in the very next chapter, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. I know their sufferings and I have come down to rescue them. That was Israel's story. So of course, go back up to those verses from chapter 63, of course they would say, look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. As if to say, I know you have inner parts and compassion. I know they can be stirred. We've been mentioned a lot, this book Gentle and Lowly. We can't mention it enough. Thankfully, you're taking the copies. I, I looked this week. There's a lot that are not there anymore. Praise God. But regarding the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion, Dane Ortland says this, let's not dishonor God by so emphasizing his transcendence that we lose a sense of the emotional life of God of which our own emotions are an echo. It's God's furious love for his people that drives his loving fury at sin. If he hated his people, he'd be unmoved by their sin. His fury for sin would lead him ultimately to offer up his son. The Lord Jesus Christ, because of his love. John three sixteen. people, come on. God so loved the world that he gave. Some theologians have said the most mysterious word in all the Bible is the so in John 3, 16. What does that mean that he's so loved? Well, I don't really know, but I'm grateful he did. See, there's deep emotion in God. We learn that throughout the Bible. Not fallen emotion like we have, of course, but this isn't the only place where God's inner parts are mentioned. And the Hebrew word or the Hebrew idea is guts. You know when you say or you hear a person say, I just have a feeling in my gut. I mean, I got to go, go with my gut. What's that mean? That means there's something deep down inside of you, you know, in this general vicinity, I guess. And you say, I got a feeling in there and I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with that. And the disposition of God's heart, the disposition of God's guts, when God goes with his gut, it's toward you. He's open-armed, whereas we're so often stiff-armed. And the Bible's message over and over again is that when he goes with his gut, salvation always follows. And the prophet is saying, Father, would you so stir up your affections, your deep emotional core, that you would look and come down and rescue? You are our only hope, not Obi-Wan Kenobi. Okay? The Redeemer from of old is our only hope. We've heard story after story over the years of your rescue. Father, Father, please don't sit idly by while your children are suffering. Do fathers sit idly by while their children are suffering? Well, they're, they're not supposed to, they shouldn't. Again, Dane Ortland says this the yearning heart of God delivers and re delivers sinners. Who find themselves drowning in the sewage of their life in need of a rescue that they cannot even begin on their own, let alone complete. But here's the thing. His saving of us is not cool and calculating. I love what Pat said earlier. It's not like he looks at you and goes, "Mm, okay. His saving of you is a matter of yearning. Not yearning for the Facebook you, not yearning for the you that you project to everyone around you, not the you that you wish you were, yearning for the real you with all your clothes off and your leprous spots covering your body. He's yearning for that. And if you know the furious love of God, our Father, our Creator, in the person of Jesus Christ himself, who yearned for you so much that he left his holy and beautiful habitation in heaven... If you know that love, you'll long for him to rend the heavens and come down again and again and again. Not in judgment, but in rescue. Not in fury, but in mercy. Not only in your life, but in the lives of others around you where you live, work, and play. You'll want this love coming down all the time. You'll long more and more that he take the parts of your life that are formless and mushy, and like this compassionate potter that he is, You'll ask him to form and shape and solidify goodness and truth and beauty into you. We will become people who yearn for his heart to be more and more known in our city. Listen, and this is all I have to say. God's looking leads him to act against sin. God's looking led him to focus his terrible anger on Jesus, not you and I. God's looking led him to remember the sin of the world as Jesus became sin on the cross so that now because of Jesus, he remembers your sin no more. He removes your sin as far as the east is from the west. He casts it into the bottom of the ocean and he posts a no fishing sign on the shore. So why do you and I continue to go back to the shore and throw a rod in and try to get some out? He put the no fishing sign there. And in Jesus Christ... The God of the universe is siding with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. And that's the good news of Christianity. And that's the reason why it is true. No eye has seen a God like this one. Let's pray to him. Father, you indeed are amazing. Uh, You are beyond anything that we can comprehend or conceive of, and yet we're so grateful for your words to us, all the words in the Bible, because they, day in and day out, they convict us of our wrong thoughts about who we've come to believe you are, or that we think we're really not that sin sick. They, they highlight once again your majesty, your glory, your transcendence, but also they magnify uh, your deep inner parts and in compassion that gets stirred up that yearns and longs for wayward children and so please come and, 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 and remind us uh, that we are all that not, not all that but that we are all those things uh, but in you uh, we have a, a great redeemer uh, so come and, and and work that, continue to work that into our hearts. Mold us and shape us like the great potter you are. We are all the work of your hand. Uh, and so we, we, we give ourselves uh, into those wonderful hands. Would you change us and mold us? Ultimately, we pray into the image of the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. Uh, amen. The The good news of uh, Christianity is that as you go from here, he goes with you. You don't have to just come here to meet with him. And then he says, hey, as you leave, good luck. Have a good week. He goes with you. Uh, And so the promise of these words is uh, something to kind of take into the the depths of your soul, cement down in there uh, and say, uh, make me into the same kind of person that we discover you are so that we would, as we see one another fading like leaves, brittle, uh, unclean, polluted, that it would not stop us from running after each other. Uh, And and as we do that, uh, I think we will mirror what he wants the world to see. So uh, take these words to heart, uh, take them with you, uh, and may they cover you and empower you as you go about your week. May the Lord bless you and keep you, May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.